0: I want you to imagine for just a second that you are the recipient of an unthinkably stupid huge inheritance. Like really big. Like five million dollars big. You had some uncle pass away. Turns out he thought better of you than you ever knew and he left you five million dollars. What would you do with that money? Would you use that money to bless others? Would you think of that money as a crazy, unexpected and unearned blessing, and in turn, would you seek to turn it into an unexpected and unearned blessing for others? Would you become lavishly generous? Would you see all the good that you could do for others? Or would you turn inward? And would you focus on accumulation? Would you focus on consumption? Would you focus on enjoyment? Would you focus on in a word? Yourself? It's a thought experiment, but it turns out it's more than a thought experiment because you're already in this position. If you're a Christian then you are the recipient of an unthinkably generous inheritance from our God. Ephesians 1 says, we have obtained what? An inheritance. It is an unexpected, unearned blessing given by God the Father to you through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Christian, you are blessed with Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 1. And so the question is what are you doing given your enriched status? What are you doing with it? Are you intent on blessing others? Are you intent on serving others? Are you intent to be as lavishly generous with others as God has been with you? Do you view your blessings, both temporal and eternal, both physical and spiritual, as something primarily for you to be thankful for and enjoy, or as something to be shared and given away? This is where our text takes us this morning, family. So I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah, if you're new to us, is the book we're working through along with Ezra, the first part of the book. It's a little bit before the middle of your Bible. So if you hit Job, Psalms, Proverbs, you've gone just a hair too far. I want you to turn left and you'll find Nehemiah. I want you to turn to chapter 5. And as you're doing that... Uh, Chapter 5 is in the middle of the second section in Nehemiah. In the first section, chapters 1 and 2, the focus is on Nehemiah's return to the land of Israel. In the second section, which runs from chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 7, the focus is on rebuilding the city. Now, last week we saw that the Israelites, they were rebuilding in the face of external opposition. Sanballat, Tobiah, other nations as well, the people of God, have enemies, and those enemies threaten the building of the city. This week, there's conflict too. But it's not external conflict. It's not a threat from outside that threatens the build. It's a threat from inside that threatens progress. In this chapter, there is conflict within the people of God. And so let's take a, verse, take a look at verses one through five. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Stop there. I realize we're only one verse in. You're like, it's gonna be a long day. Just saddle up and ride, get ready for me. But I want you to see the contrast between the end of four and the beginning of five. The end of four is the covenant community, unified, focused striving together toward one goal, building the city of God. They're outnumbered, they're under-resourced, they're working day and night, but they're trusting God, they're working hard, they're on mission together. And then 5-1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. This is like when you're driving at 55 and all of a sudden you just hit a pothole. It's jarring. Something's not right. And it's something within their own ranks. The outcry is against their Jewish brothers. So let's read on, verse two. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, and it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Okay, here's the deal. So you've got three complaints. Each introed by the phrase, there were those who said. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many, so let us get grain. They need food. That's number one. There were those who also said, here's number two, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain. So they're not able to get grain. They borrow and they put up their property as security for a loan to get grain. And there were those who said, number three, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. So just by the way, remember, I don't know if you remember this, the enemies of God uh, told the king, do you remember what they told the king? They told the king, hey, if you let Jerusalem be rebuilt, those people aren't going to pay their taxes. Remember what they said? But they do pay their taxes, don't they? Even at great personal costs themselves, they do pay their taxes. God's people are good citizens in every age. Well, it's a bit hard to see if these are three separate and distinct complaints or if it's only one complaint. I think there's overlap. Uh, here's the basic picture. There's a famine in the land. Basic necessities are hard to come by. God's people are using what they have houses, vineyards, fields, they are using those as collateral to get loans for their basic needs like food and taxes. But when they run out of money, what do they do? They give their sons and daughters into slavery to pay the bills. Now side note, this is more like indentured servitude than chattel slavery of American past, okay? There was provision for this in the Torah. In fact, there's provision for them to be able to buy them back. But in this situation, there's no way for them to do that because they don't own their property anymore. Their income source is gone, so they can't earn money to buy them back. Do you see what a pickle they're in? That they are in a bad way, and what makes this so bad is that it's not the nations who are the loan sharks, if you will, It's fellow Israelites who are taking advantage of their needy brethren. Verse 1. There arose a great cry against who? Their Jewish brothers. Verse 5. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. In other words, we're family. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And just think about this. They're on mission together. They're all working together to rebuild the city. But then one has need and his brother who's better off exploits him for personal profit instead of taking care of him in love. That should make you angry just thinking about it. And it made Nehemiah angry too so let's look at this next section where he he calls them to repent in verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and they could not find a word to say. Nehemiah is calling them out on sin. He's calling them out. Now his basis for this is the Torah. In Leviticus 25 and uh, Deuteronomy 15, God makes it clear that if money is lent to a fellow Israelite, it's a no-interest loan. Okay, if money is lent to a fellow interest, if to a fellow, to a fellow Israelite, it's a no-interest loan. You can charge interest to the nations, but you can't charge interest to the people of God. They were charging interest to the people of God. They were profiting on their need. Uh, As it relates to enslavement, enslavement was allowed. An Israelite could give himself in service to another Israelite to pay off a debt or if he got in a bad way. But he could be bought back. Covered that a second ago. And even if he couldn't be bought back, he was to be freed in the seventh year, the sabbatical year. But here, the real offense is that they've just come out of slavery to the other nations. They were all just enslaved. And you're going to turn around and you're going to enslave your brother because he can't pay his bills in his hour of need? This is worse than the situation that the book of James warns us about. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James 2, 15 and 16. This situation's worse. They're not wishing them well and doing nothing. I almost wish they would have done that. They're using them for their own profit. They ought to have known better. But if anyone has this world's good and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. Deed and truth, 1 John 3, 17. So this is sin. We need to call this what it is. It's sin and it's got to be repented of. And that's what Nehemiah calls them to in verse nine. So I said, verse nine, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. This is repentance. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. By the way, just write that down. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Repentance isn't just saying, I'm wrong, I was sorry. Or I, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Repentance is turning around and walking in the fear of God. Doing what is right. What they did here was wrong. They had defrauded their brothers. And so they need to make it right. They had taken from them. They need to give it all back. Now, I just want you to pause. This may have been hard. This may have been real hard. We don't know, but we could imagine. Maybe these guys had made additional business decisions based on their newly held land. Maybe they had already spent the money they made. Maybe they had entered into other significant obligations with loans themselves, but they knew they were going to have these interest payments from these guys to make their interest payments on what they want to do. But none of that really matters, does it? They need to make this right. Brothers and sisters, just a quick note. Sometimes repentance is hard. Sometimes making right what you have made wrong is going to cost you a lot, and it's hard. And you can always tell the difference between real repentance and fake repentance in that real repentance is willing to walk through the pain to make it right. Well, these Israelites, to their credit the sword of God's word has pierced their heart. And in verse 12, they promised to obey. Then they said, we will restore these things and require nothing from them. We will do as you say, and I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. This is very encouraging. This is a commitment to repentance. They are going to do what needs to be done And so Nehemiah calls in the priests. He makes them swear to do as they had promised. And then he takes this occasion to issue them a warning just to further cement this commitment on their part. And it's verse 13. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said... So may God shake out every man from his house and his labor who does not keep this promise. May he be shaken out and emptied. So this is an enacted parable about judgment. If you don't follow through, you're going to be shaken out and judged by God. So if anybody's like shaking their hem of their garment, no, I'm just kidding. Um, And all the assembly said, amen. Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is incredible. These guys just got called out on their sin. They own it. They commit to repent. And now they're worshiping. Christian, you actually know what this is like. When the sword of God word cuts our hearts, it doesn't just cut to wound, it cuts to heal. And that's why we can often say ouch and amen in the same sermon, right? Because when sin is identified, it's a grace to us, right? We want it gone, and we want to obey. And so we're happy for the cut because we know the cut's intended to heal. You know, their response here makes me think of Paul's words to the Corinthians. He'd called them out on significant sin, they repent, and then Paul says this, See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation towards sin. What fear towards God. What longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves clear in this matter. This today is like that. Paul's words. These Israelites aren't just silent and sorrowful. They are zealous to do what is right. Now, a real train wreck has been avoided here. I-, I hope you see that. This internal conflict is just as much of a threat to their building the city of God as Sanballat and Tobiah and whoever else the external enemy might be out there. If this would have kept going, you wouldn't have even needed an external enemy because the progress would have stopped because of division, disunity, and infighting. This thing keeps going. There's, there's nothing to break down. It won't get built up in the first place. So praise God. They are zealous to do what's right. Amen? There you go. Now they need an example. And they've got it in Nehemiah. So if the first half of the chapter is what not to do, the second half of the chapter is what to do. Nehemiah is a leader who models generosity. Turn your eyes to 514. Moreover, from that time that I was appointed governor to be the governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me ...laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration of 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us... Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Now what bounds this section is is a food allowance, okay? That's that's just the the literary marker of this section um, in 14 through 18. You see it in verse 14. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance from the governor. And then you see it again in verse 18. uh, Yet for all this I did not demand a food allowance. So this is about a food allowance. Well, what's a food allowance? Well, it was a tax that the king authorized Nehemiah to place upon the people. He could lawfully charge this tax to the people of God in order for this need uh, to, to, to be met. It was a tax Nehemiah could charge in order to defray his expenses as a governor. Just understand this. He's a governor, so he's got lots of diplomatic socializing and Hospitality to do there were at my table hundred and fifty men ladies What have I just said hundred and fifty people are gonna come over to your house today, you know, you're like, whoa uh, Besides those who came from the nations that's diplomatic hospitality and you gotta you gotta feed all those people He says now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every kind of wine in abundance This is why he could have charged the people a tax All the governors before him had charged it. They took from them their daily rations of 40 shekels of silver. That's, That's the tax, but Nehemiah doesn't do it, and why? Two reasons. One, because of the fear of God. I did not do so because of the fear of God, verse 15. Brothers and sisters, the fear of God is a good thing. The fear of God is not just something non-Christians do as they think about his judgment looming over their heads. Fear of God is something for Christians. To walk in the fear of God is to live our lives having him fixed as our reference point. So the Bible talks about the fear of man, right? What's the fear of man? Well, it's acting and living in order to avoid man's displeasure or living in order to gain man's approval. That's the fear of man. The fear of God is the opposite. We want to live our lives with Him on our mind. What we want most, what we want most is to avoid God's displeasure. We don't want Him to be displeased with our lives. And what we want most is to live in a way that pleases and honors Him. Nehemiah walked in the fear of God person that mattered most to him was God. And may it be so for us. And by the way, when that's the case, you're going to treat God's people better too, which leads to the second reason. The second reason Nehemiah didn't charge the governor's tax was because he saw the burden the people were under. Verse 18, yet for all this, despite the the service or despite the significant personal cost of feeding 150 mouths, yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Nehemiah's not going to put this burden on the people. The people are already burdened. How could he take from them when they're already at the bottom of the barrel? No way, Nehemiah is going to happily forgo his rights. He is going to forgo the privileges associated with his position. He will acquire no land, verse 16. He will persevere in the work on the wall, verse 16, because he knows for this mission to be accomplished, he needs to lead in the fear of God and for the good of God's people. So he lays aside his rights and he lays aside his privileges and he models generosity and sacrifice. It is right for him to pray the prayer that he prayed in verse 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. That's right, that's a right prayer on his lips. HE HAS DONE MUCH GOOD FOR THIS PEOPLE. AND HE HAS DONE IT AT GREAT PERSONAL COST TO HIMSELF and not just in today's text remember for just a second the beginning of this book what did he do he went before a pagan king and he asked to come and to do this that request carried for it the potential of significant personal loss the story of Nehemiah is one long and lovely account of a man whose love for God and God's people led him consistently to self-sacrifice and generosity. And thinking about him should lead us to think about our Savior. Nehemiah points beyond himself to Jesus Christ. What a breathtaking portrait of Christ is here if you have eyes to see it. Nehemiah did not make use of his rights and privileges, and Christ did not make use of his. Remember who Christ is. He is the second person of the Trinity. He did not begin to exist when he became a man, he has always existed because he is the Son of God. From eternity past, he has enjoyed the right praises of all the heavenly hosts. From eternity past, he has enjoyed the sweet fellowship of the Trinity. And these were his due as the son. These were right. And these are privileges that are appropriate. And yet he left them. He did not cling to them, he did not insist upon what he was due. He left the glory of heaven. I'm struck too at Nehemiah's participation on the wall. Nehemiah built the wall. He he didn't come as a Lord. He came as a brother, and so too Jesus. He did not come as Lord. He came as brother. He didn't come as our overlord. He came as our brother. He entered into the life that we lived. He experienced it with us, alongside us. He, He felt our burdens. He felt our pain. He cried over our losses. He lived the life we live Brothers and sisters, and why? For our eternal good. Nehemiah saw that the people of God were in shambles. City broken down, walls in disrepair, and he came to fix it. Oh, brothers, Christ saw us in our distress. He saw us in our sin. He saw us in the mess we have utterly made of our lives and how we are at odds with God and with other people, how we are utterly incapable of living our lives such that God is honored and glorified. He saw it all, and he came to fix it. He not only left the glories of heaven, He not only lived among us as our brother, he did so in order to give himself for our salvation. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2. Jesus knew the only way to extricate us from this mess of sin that we are in is to come and pay the price for our sin by dying in our place, brothers and sisters. Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. He did not die for his sins. He died for your sins. And he died for mine. And his resurrection is proof that his payment was accepted. Could there be a more generous man? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I hope you're awed by the sacrifice and generosity of Nehemiah. The example he set in the face of people's selfishness is awesome. I hope you're awed even more by the generosity of Jesus Christ. And I hope this awe leads you to action. You know, for us, this text is designed to make us take a good look at how we treat one another in this room. This text isn't about social justice. This text is about how the people of God treat the people of God. This is a scandalous situation this morning. Think about it. They are on mission together. They are building the city of God, but as they're building, the way they treat one another threatens to bring the whole thing down from the inside out. Their selfishness, their lack of generosity, their lack of love, that's ultimately what this is. It's a failure to love. This is a threat of inestimable danger. Brothers and sisters, we have to look at this and say, I will not be like those Israelites. I will follow the example of Nehemiah better. I will follow the example of Christ. What does that look like? Well, for one, it looks like understanding that you don't belong to you. (laughs) One of the failures of this people was not seeing that their own individual actions affected God's people. Brothers and sisters, you have got to see that your actions, everything you do or don't do, it affects our church. What you do individually affects one another corporately. What, what you do individually either contributes to or detracts from God's eternal plan to declare his glory to a dying world through normal local churches like ours. As Americans, we are tempted to see our lives through an individual lens, but the Bible is poking at you to see your life through a together lens, a church lens. We are on mission together. We are called to build Christ's church together. And if we are to do that, if we are to weather the storms of the enemies of God that rage all around us, and you know that they rage, We have got to do a better job than they did. They were self-focused. We must be one another focused. And this is nothing but what the New Testament says should be the normal Christian life. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed or truth. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that what would characterize our church is not selfishness but Christ-like generosity. We have a vastly generous Savior. How could we treat each other in any way other than the way he's treated us? Now, now what does that mean? What does that generosity look like? I just want to warn you ahead of time, I'm going to meddle. They say it's a preacher's job to do so. Let's just think about that more broadly than just money. It's, it's easily applied to money, and we'll talk about money in a minute, but it goes so much further. How about generosity and our forgiveness towards one another? How about generosity and our forgiveness towards one another? How can we not forgive one another when we understand how much we've been forgiven by God? How can we not be generous towards one another in forgiveness given God's generosity and forgiveness? It's preposterous. And yet we all know of churches that are filled with people who have bitter thoughts towards one another. May it not be so here. Forgive, brothers and sisters. Forgive. Forgive your brothers and sisters. And don't lie to yourself and don't say, I've forgiven but your heart still boils within you and you wouldn't have them over for a meal. You haven't forgiven. Do you need help? Talk to me. Talk to another elder. We'll help. Few things are as powerful than forgiveness. How about generosity in our assumptions about one another? Are you generous in your thoughts towards one another? So if somebody walks by you on Sunday morning and doesn't say hi, do you think they're ignoring me. Or, how rude. Or, clearly they're thinking about themselves and they need to listen to BJ's message. (laughs) Maybe they just have something on their mind. Maybe they're trying to catch up with someone before the service starts. Maybe it took everything within themselves just to get to church because there's trouble in their home that weighs on them. Or maybe it's your pastor thinking, oh my goodness, I feel like I have a dud for the people of God this morning and I just can't think about much else. In every situation, you've got a choice to think positively concerning your brothers and his motives, or you have a choice to think negatively. Be generous and think positively. How about generosity in our time? So we should be generous in our forgiveness. We should be generous in our assumptions. How about generosity in our time? I will be straight with you. It should be so easy to find a sub for child care. It should be Fall off a log easy. It should be so easy to find a sub for cleaning the church. It should be fall off a log easy. Just, it's like the old method of opening up your Bible and that's what God has for you to read for the day. I'm not necessarily advocating that. I'm just saying do that. Open up your directory. Pick a number. Call. And brother, sister, if you're the recipient of that call, unless you can't for a real reason say no, your answer should be an unequivocal, unhesitating yes. Yes, of course I can help. Yes, of course I can do that for yourself. Given God's generosity in serving us, are we willing and eager to serve each other? How about generosity with the gospel? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we need to be generous in speaking gospel truth to one another. What I mean by that is just taking the time to help one another see how the truth of Jesus applies to our lives. Is it generous of us if we see each other thinking wrongly about our lives in some regard? Is it generous of us if we don't come alongside in a brotherly or sisterly manner and help others along the gospel way with us? That's, that's not generous. And yes, yes, how about generosity with our money? Do you feel like giving is a burden? Giving isn't a burden, it's a blessing. Do you feel like giving is something we want from you? Giving is not something we want from you, it's something we want for you. Why do we give? Because God has given us his son. So how can we not be generous in giving? How can we not consistently and generously prioritize giving to God's work here at Redeeming Grace Church? So brothers and sisters, do you give at least 10% of your income to the Lord's church? Now clarification, we are not under the law to do that. We are not under the Old Testament law to tithe. No, that's true. But I would argue that we shouldn't give less than our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament. After all, we see the fullness of His grace in Jesus Christ and they did not. Brothers and sisters, do you prioritize this? So if you're gone on vacation, do you make sure to cut your check before you go or do you not think twice about missing a month or two? If you have life events that come up, Do you choose to decrease your emergency fund or do you choose to make up the shortfall in a decrease in giving? Is this uncomfortable to talk about? Sure, but this is where the rubber meets the road as it relates to generosity. And by the way, just to press the point further, I would encourage you not to think of your giving as done after you've given to the church. Are you aware of needs within the body that, that you can meet? Does somebody need a bunch of groceries? buy them. Does somebody need repair work on their car? Pay the bill. Does somebody need a load of wood for winter? Buy it. You don't want them to know? Call me or another elder and we'll take care of it anonymously. And by the way, if you're a visitor, I'm not talking to you. (laughs) We don't want anything from you at all. We are so glad you're here. I'm talking to the members of Redeeming Grace Church. And you know, as we think about generosity in general, I'm just going to zoom back out. You know what would be incredible? (laughs) If our lives were an echo of the Apostle Paul's when he said to the Corinthians, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Oh, may that be us. Because we are our brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. His welfare is our welfare, and our welfare builds Christ's church. This is how we're going to continue to build, brothers and sisters. This is how redeeming grace will be a light for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're thinking, boy, this has got nothing to do with me. It's got everything to do with you. I want to encourage you, don't assume upon the generosity of God. God is so generous to you in giving you life and breath and sustaining your every moment. And right now, instead of being thankful for that and serving him and loving him for that, you are assuming upon it and assuming that it's your right to breathe and it's not. His generosity to you is meant to lead you to the fullness of his generosity in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So stop presuming upon his unbelievable kindness to you in that you are alive. And come to him, turn from your sin and trust in his son and live forever. His kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Behold the generosity of God and Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, non-Christians. The generosity of Nehemiah, the generosity of Jesus Christ, it all flows from the generosity of God, the Father Almighty, who sent his son to save sinners that don't deserve it. To save us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in the words of one of our elders, Mike Criscolo, you gave your best, your very best, your one and only for us so that we might be saved.